This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Katie Balls. Well, it's the week of the Sue Gray report and there's lots of bickering, partly about a meeting that Boris Johnson and Sue Gray had to discuss the publication of her interim report and who decided to have it. James, why have we ended up having this big row about admin? So it came out that there had been a meeting between Boris Johnson and Sue Gray. And then allies of Boris Johnson were very quick to say that, that Sue Gray had requested the meeting, not them. And so, you know, it, it was unfair to criticise him for it. Th- that turned out to be not the full picture in that, yes, Sue Gray's office had sent the uh, technical invitation to the meeting. But they'd sent the technical invitation to the meeting after a message from Number 10 suggesting a meeting might be a, a good idea. So it was more kind of finding a time in that. And I think that there is a lot of concern in government, even among some of Boris Johnson's closest allies, about the row that Number 10, or some people Number 10 appeared to have picked with Sue Gray. Let's look at the front page of today's Daily Mail. And sense that this is not entirely sensible, considering that, A, you know, not that she's going to change her report, but that, you know, she is going to have to give evidence, I suspect, to the Privileges Committee investigation into whether Boris Johnson misled the House or not. And so falling out with her would not be uh, the smartest thing to do. So I, I think that you, you will now, I suspect, for today's statement at Lobby, that, you know, actually Number 10 had started the whole ball rolling on this, is, is an attempt to kind of calm things down on this front. And Katie, more widely, what do we now expect the report to conclude? There have been a lot of briefings in the run-up to this, partly people trying to do expectations management, but there have been a few lines that have come out over the, the past 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if we're being completely honest, we just don't know. I mean, there's various briefings from different sides. We also don't know when the report is coming out. I think the more people seem to think it is Tuesday, Wednesday than today, but you wouldn't bet against today just on the off chance. And when it comes to the report, obviously we've had officials previously warning that it will be devastating for the Prime Minister. And then you have other officials saying, well, no, it won't be so devastating for the Prime Minister, it'll be more devastating for other figures. And Sue Gray, in her role as a civil servant, will not want to go so far as to something which could be as seen as political, such as bringing down a Prime Minister. What we do know is Boris Johnson will be named in the report. That's part of the reason there was a meeting in the first place. We also know that Simon Case is going to be cited in this report. Other figures will be named too. That's something that Sue Gray has been planning to do. But I think one of the ideas gaining traction is that the person who could perhaps be criticised the most would be Simon Case for presiding over a Whitehall culture which allowed these um, events to take place. And of course, do you remember, originally it was Simon Case, not Sue Gray, who was supposed to conduct this report but after it was found that he himself had been an event uh, that um, there were questions over he had to recuse himself and Sue Gray was put, put in charge so I don't think the report's going to be particularly um, enjoyable reading for either Boris Johnson or Simon Case I think the probably the, the things to look for which is 
how much can this reopen um, people's feelings over Partygate? Is it the case that everyone perhaps is a little bit worn down of having to talk about this for, you know, five months on end, therefore it has lost some of its potency? Or is it the case that if uh, certain details emerge, some of which haven't been in the papers, and if potentially photos, and at the moment we don't know if photos are going to be in this report, but you have Dominic Cummings, for example, warning that he believes officials are going to start leaking photos, officials who are annoyed at the fact that some of them received fines when the Prime Minister only received one, you do have a potential for a cocktail which this um, comes back to be a tricky issue. I would caveat though by just saying it's still the general feeling amongst Tory MPs that this is going to be a tough week but not one which spells imminent danger for Boris Johnson, though of course things can change quickly. Now, James, we've said a number of times on this podcast that one of the things that makes it much harder for Boris Johnson to move on from this is that he's moving on to even more uncomfortable territory, which is the cost of living crisis. And it's quite difficult for him to move again because there is a fundamental disagreement between number 10 and number 11 on how to address this cost of living crisis. Just just explain where the, the lines are here. I think to zoom out kind of even further, I mean, the fundamental problem for the government is that it has very few levers that it can actually pull in terms of what is driving the cost of living crisis, which is you look at the government's recently released energy strategy, you can't suddenly generate more cheaply produced domestic energy. You are you are stuck at the moment, and the UK is stuck on, you know, importing expensive energy. Then you've got the fact that, you know, even if you don't want to go as far as the government of the Bank of England and talk about apocalyptic rises in food prices, you know, it is clear that the cost of the weekly shop is going to increase, again, for reasons largely outside the, the government's control about, you know, partly a combination of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, partly a combination of what poor harvests in the US and India are doing to global food prices, all of these things, right? So, so that, that is the difficulty. Then I think actually, you talk about kind of number 10, number. there's also clearly divisions within number 10 about, you know, who likes a windfall tax, who doesn't like a windfall tax, you know, what do you do? And I think this is the other great problem for the government, which is, you know, in the COVID crisis, the public essentially saw the magic money tree, which was the government said, right, there's a lot of really bad economic stuff coming down the track. We're going to step in. We're going to pay 80% of your wages. We're going to give businesses grants to stop them going bust. All of these things, right? And people now say, well, I'm no more responsible for the rise in global food and energy prices than I was for COVID. So what, why am I not getting the same level of support? And, and the truth is that the public finances have taken an absolute battering since 2008 because you had obviously the 2008 financial crash, which cost money. You had COVID that cost money and you've now got this cost of living crisis. And so the question then becomes kind of what to do. And I think you see in a way the political problem, which is the government spent £9 billion earlier this year on energy prices. That is about, you know, a penny and a half on the basic rate of income tax. And yet you do not see anyone right now saying, oh, right, well, the government spent £9 billion. And so the question is, if the government steps in with further support, would that support basically just, would that alleviate the demands a few months down the line and we'll be back where we are now with people saying well what more are they doing but I think when you've got the head of the IMF you know not normally um, regarded as a spendthrift organization saying look governments are going to have to subsidize food and energy prices for the poorer members of society it, it is quite clear that this is a huge problem and I think it is a problem that is going to be a nightmare for incumbent governments everywhere you know it's 
you know, why I think the Democrats are likely to have a very bad midterm elections uh, this November. It could be what cost Joe Biden the White House in 2024. You know, you look at the Australian election, Scott Morrison has gone to be replaced by Albanese, the Labour leader. You know, you, I think this is going to be very, very difficult for incumbent governments around the developed world. I would just add to that, that if you're looking at... The current debate. I mean, I think it's, you can definitely say that number 11 are more pro the windfall tax, or they were, you know, a few days ago, as opposed to number 10. But I think, as James touched on, there's a situation where you have figures such as David Canzini, Andrew Griffith, who make up uh, some of Boris Johnson's advisors, who see us unconservative. They're backed up a figure such as David Frost, now Telegraph columnist, but um, for many, uh, the former Brexit negotiator is seen as, you know, a figure on the right, which embodies where some Tory MPs are. But Boris Johnson and I think it as of Friday, really had not made his mind up on this and has given an interview today where it very much feels as though he is not ruling a windfall tax out. And I think the sense amongst those who have been pushing for a windfall tax and have only recently come to the way of thinking is it's naturally where things are going to end up, so you may as well may as well accept it, um, given the support. But Boris Johnson has said in an interview, I'm not attracted intrinsically to new taxes, but we've got to do what we can to look after people through aftershocks of COVID, through current pressures on energy prices. And this is in a reference to a windfall tax. So I think that for all the talk that there are some around Boris Johnson who don't like the idea of one, it is clearly still on the table and amongst Tory MPs is, I would say, is probably easier to find Tory MPs who are pro it than against it. Still a vocal bunch who don't like it, but I would say probably more Tory MPs who want it as a way of showing they are doing something. And James, finally, you mentioned the Australian elections. Uh, just tell us a little bit about the results and also what impact that will have on the UK's uh, relationship with Australia. We obviously recently signed a security pact with Australia and America. Things have changed in terms of leadership. How will that impact our, our relations? Well, on, on the domestic Australian politics, I, I'll defer to Katie, who knows more about it than me. But I, I just make two points quickly on the foreign policy front. I don't think you'll see any great shift away from AUKUS. I think mean, some people in, in, in thought that the Chinese Communist Party were trying to kind of wait out the Morrison government, thinking that Labour would take a softer line. Look at one of the first acts of Albanese is to head to this Quad Leaders meeting, you know, this alliance designed to, to balance China. I also think that, you know, the Boris Scott Morrison, Boris Johnson, Scott Morrison relationship was good on a personal level. But climate change was it was a clear issue between the two of them. You know, I think Scott Morrison felt very bored and worn down by Boris Johnson's insistence on, you know, pushing him on net zero and all this kind of sort of stuff. I, I think that the, the, the Albanese and Johnson will be an easier fit on those kind of things. I, I mean, in terms of the read across the UK politics, I think one thing that is people are already talking about is, you know, look at where the Australian Liberals lost seats, and uh, especially to, the, to, these, to these teal independents. I think that is a worrying sign. Now, no two countries' politics are identical, but there is a sufficient read-across between Australian and UK politics that you have people like Vincent Crosby and Isaac Levito who kind of work in both countries, or, you know, uh, and John McTurner on the left and things like that. I think if you look at where the Liberals lost seats, you know, that would be a very worrying sign if you were Dominic Raab in Isha and Walton, because the seats the Liberals lost in Australia are essentially the Australian versions of Isha and Walton. Though I think uh, probably Dominic Raab had enough to worry about just looking at the most recent local election results. I think wh when you're looking at the results, obviously it's quite tricky to draw complete parallels between UK and Australia because there's lots of different factors at play. I think as, as James touches on, clearly climate change was a big factor, particularly in, you know, as, as someone on the Australian side put it to me, you know, they kind of lost seats that were 
that would here have been seen as, you know, seats like Kensington, when the Tories have lost those, well, as they did in 2017, is that kind of um, seats that were once seen as, you know, guaranteed to be Liberals, and therefore lots of questions for the party. But I think you've seen something quite interesting where lots of probably the more moderate figures in the Liberal Party have actually the ones who've lost their seats, and the ones who have left and have held on to their seats are more in the areas where um, Scott Morrison's brand of politics tend to be better. So in terms of where the Liberal Party goes from here, I think that one of the things we're hearing from some of those who have seen perhaps on the more moderate end of the party is who actually is their natural successor now, given that some of those people have lost their seats. Uh, but as James says, I think the the rise of these teal independents um, does just show you how in some of these seats you could see perhaps it would be the Liberal Democrats here, but that it wasn't so much that Labour did exceptionally well, but the fact that you saw independent candidates and you know other parties do well alongside Labour has helped Labour um, get to a victory, which I think will give all politicians here pause for thought, because of course, as we've said many times on this podcast, the Conservatives have to win a majority to govern. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, James. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Coffee House Shots. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And to keep up to date with the world of Westminster, sign up for Unrivaled Insight and Analysis with Isabel Hardman's Evening Blend newsletter, delivered to your inbox every weekday evening. Sign up at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash evening hyphen blend.